Welcome to the Pretty Deep Media Podcast. I'm Preeti. And I'm Deepa. We're two sisters who ask better questions to get better answers. Today's topic, how fertility treatments led to breast cancer. So this goes all the way back to 2016, doesn't it? Yeah, in 2016, um, though I wasn't trying actively for a child, I was told by OB number one that I may have fertility issues based on some panels that she ran on me without me actually really knowing. What did she run on you? She ran progesterone, though I don't remember which day of my cycle, AMH, which is anti-malarian hormone, and a lot of doctors use that to kind of assess the health of your ovarian reserve. What did she say when she saw the labs? Well, the AMH was in the high ones. I think it was 1.6 or 1.8. So it wasn't abnormally low, but she felt that uh, based on the results that I would need to consult um, an IVF practice. What did you do instead? Well, at, at the time, I was a little bit taken aback because when a doctor tells you, even though you're not trying, that you might have infertility issues, you have to wonder, is it because you know they think that you're 32 and you know there's something wrong with you and they're pushing you to have a child? I mean, all those questions run through your mind. So my first instinct was to push back and say, I'm not even going to pay attention to this. And the next OB that I was with was very laid back. This was OB number two. And they said, you know what, we're not super worried. We're just going to kind of make sure everything looks okay in the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, and the uterus, and everything looked fine. So there was no cause for concern. And they said, just keep trying naturally if you want to have a child and see what happens. So you stayed with OB number two and eventually got pregnant. It was the same year that I switched to OB number two in 2017 that I ended up getting pregnant. Yes. And that was a natural conception. So then the baby's born in 2018 Mm -hmm. and all is going well. In 2019, we take a family trip to Europe. Well, yes, but to backtrack, um, my husband and I had started talking about, you know, maybe we should consider having a second child because we're both 35. So we started trying in April, um, but I was still breastfeeding. We weren't sleeping at night. I mean, it was all these things, right, that happens to new parents in the first year. So it's not like we were consistently trying and, you know, we're consistently being met with a negative result. So we did go to Europe after that. And at that time, I had actually weaned Zara from breastfeeding. So after uh, about 13 months, but then on that trip, she started breastfeeding very manically, actually. So now suddenly she's breastfeeding. Do you notice any changes? No. I mean, the only thing that I noticed was that I was suddenly making milk again uh, when that had kind of dwindled. And, you know, she was breastfeeding very unpredictably. I mean, you remember we were at the Parthenon in the middle of the day and she demanded that she be breastfed. I mean, things like that were not happening leading up to this trip. Hormones are probably fluctuating. We come back from Europe and you call OB number two, who you're with. I had called OB number two before I had left. Europe and for Europe and then she left me a voicemail while we were away saying that based on what they had seen um, at me everything looked fine uh, that they just there was really no cause for concern so perhaps that was the right assessment uh, but for me I think I became impatient and that might have been my own undoing because I was telling myself okay all the research says if it's six months after you're 35 and you haven't conceived, there's something wrong with you and you need to go and you know become a little bit more aggressive. At least that's what conventional wisdom suggests. So I wasn't sure what to do. And then in the middle of this, 
OB number two was uh, getting bought out by a local medical conglomerate. So they actually stopped responding to messages and calls. They didn't hear from them. So I thought that I was being left you know, alone to figure this out. So I said, well, at least let me consult with OB number three and let me see what they have to say. OB number three ran day 26 blood work after hearing all of this. I asked why it was day 26 and OB number three felt that that was the most accurate portrayal of ovulation and progesterone numbers, which I disagreed with then, um, though I agreed to go along with it. And I disagree with now, especially after what happened. But, you know, she ran day 26 numbers. And of course, progesterone was just above one, which is what happens before you menstruate. So she said, okay, it looks like you're not ovulating. And so we're going to have to try Clomid which is an oral medication uh, meant to help you ovulate. You believe now that she misdiagnosed your ovulation frequency. Yes, and I have the data to back that up. Okay, so she inaccurately assumed that you were not ovulating and then gave you this medicine. What does Clomid do? From what I know, um, Clomid basically, uh, it's supposed to suppress estrogen and make uh, your FSH, your follicular stimulating hormone and your luteinizing hormone work harder so that you have the potential to release multiple eggs through multiple follicles in a single cycle. And how do you know if it's working? I think it's based on what an OB or a reproductive endocrinologist checks in blood work. I think that's how they would assess that. Now, how do you define working? Sure, you can make multiple eggs. Does that mean that all of the eggs are viable? You know, is it part of the body's natural rhythm of hormones? No. So I don't know what the quality of the eggs would be. There's no way of assessing that. Okay, so she gave you the Clomid starting in December of 2019. Correct, early December. Um, I took 50 milligrams for five days uh, near the beginning of my cycle. It was days five through nine. And when they ran blood work on me, again, day 26, though the cycle length had uh, elongated by a couple of days this time, that was unusual for me. Um, she said that there was no evidence that I had ovulated. So in January then, she redid the Clomid. So after I had one cycle, after the 50 milligrams, and she concluded that I had not ovulated, she said, let's up it to 100 milligrams. And so then I did another cycle of 100 milligrams. And this time she said, there is evidence that you ovulated, though my cycle had also lengthened by a couple of days again, well past 30 days. Uh, but she said, okay, this is good. You've ovulated. So even though you're not pregnant, we are seeing some results, but I think now is the time for you to consult a reproductive endocrinologist to help you. So then she referred you to a local reproductive endocrinologist, and then you went to her right away? Yeah, I did. Um, I went to her right away, and you know she looked at all the numbers, you know, because OB number three had ran my anti-malarian hormone again in November, and it had come back as 0.4. So this uh, reproductive endocrinologist concluded that my fertility window was, um, you know, nearing its closure, so to speak, right? I wasn't, you know, at menopause, but I wasn't too far away from it biologically. So she felt that we had to move very aggressively, stay on the 100 milligrams of Clomid, this time do timed ovulation with Ovidril injections, and do an intrauterine insemination. 
So this is what she planned for February. In early February, yes. And before that, she did an HSG, which is basically like um, injecting a saline dye into your uterus and then making sure that everything is clear and the fallopian tubes and the uterine cavity and everything seemed fine. So, you know, they did all that as well. And they monitored estradiol and progesterone and LH and FSH um, in their panel of blood work. Okay, so the fertility specialist has now totally taken over. Correct. OB number three is out of the picture, uh, except for being kept in the loop. Okay, so the fertility specialist keeps you on the Clomid, same dosage, and just does the insemination. Yes, uh, the intrauterine insemination. Um, So what ended up happening was that that didn't work, but I developed ovarian cysts as a consequence of the Clomid and all of the hormones. And now your cycle length has gone longer. Yeah, it was over 40 days in the, uh, in the third cycle of Clomid. Okay, so 40 days you have not gotten a menstrual cycle. Right, and in the meantime, I started secreting breast milk again from the left side. Okay, so you're secreting breast milk or what could have been something different, who knows? I mean, it looked milky, so it's hard to say. I had, not, I had just weaned Zara in late November good so it's hard to say what it was Um, I felt lumpiness in the left side though there was no lump and then as soon as I got a cycle after the 40 plus day mark the lumpiness receded and there was no lump there after that that I could feel and so everything went back to normal seemingly seemingly though because I was still taking Clomid it would have you know gone through that same repetitive cycle again okay now that when you are with this fertility specialist did she check your estradiol numbers yes And what was your estradiol number when you felt the milk secretion or the lumpiness? I think it was over 300. Now you have high estradiol numbers and some noticeable physical symptoms. The fertility specialist, instead of taking you off Clomid, keeps you on it. She said that one more cycle of Clomid was all that she was going to do before we reassessed. In March, she wanted to do one more IUI. This was after the fourth cycle of Clomid. So we did it again with the timed ovulation through Ovidril. And again, no pregnancy. Cycle was past 40 days. And I got two ovarian cysts and an ultrasound told her that as well. So just like the third cycle, I developed ovarian cysts and I had irregular spotting and you know things that you're not supposed to have happen in between cycles. Instead of getting a period, I had spotting. And then it took another 11 or 12 days for my cycle to start. Now, by this time, it was already April because the IUI was in uh, mid to late March. So now we're in April and I feel a lump in the left breast in the lower quadrant. Um, and I had never felt a lump like that before. It was big. And I just thought, okay, maybe it is related to all the hormones as we correctly found out later. But I didn't want to wait to just let it recede. I wanted to make sure it was nothing else. So I went to OB number three and I called them. And I told the reproductive endocrinologist's office too that this had happened uh, both times in February and in April. So everybody assumed it was something totally benign and it would just go away. And OB number three checked me. Um, They took me in right away. And, you know, she did the self-exam, which I do on myself every month. And she said, huh, I never felt anything when I examined you in the fall. There was no lump, nothing. So this is definitely there. And then she said very clearly that she never felt anything then. But now she obviously could feel what I was feeling. So she said, let's get you an ultrasound. Let's just rule it out because I would hate for this to be something. And for me to tell you, don't worry about it. 
So I said, okay. So I went to a local uh, radiology imaging place um, that is known for this particular um, examination. And so many women go there for ultrasounds and mammograms. So I went for an ultrasound thinking everything was going to be fine and that we would just rule out, you know, as a precaution. But an ultrasound turned into a mammogram. And then mammogram turned into a core needle biopsy. This was all within five hours. And I remember I called you and messaged you at every step telling you something doesn't feel right. And then before I went in for my core needle biopsy, um, the radiologist who had looked at my images told me that she was 90% certain that it was malignant. And that was when I remember I called you, um, you know, his, like not hysterical, but obviously I was very upset because, you know, I was alone. No one had been with me that morning. Pat was at home with Zara. So um, this is a little bit traumatic. So then you rushed over and then they let you see me for a few minutes before the core needle biopsy. And I mean, you did speak to some of the staffers. Yeah. the I remember the nurses said that hormones have a lot to do with lumps forming and that 80% of what they biopsy ends up being benign anyway and that it's all fluctuating according to cyclical occurrences. So we figured that that had something to do with it. We asked the radiologist if Clomid had played any role in it. Interestingly, she said she didn't think so. She dated the mass about two years old. Which is not what any oncologist that we spoke with after said. And we'll get to that. Yes. But her guess was that it was two years old. In the meantime, I called my friend Sarah. She's a pharmacist and she's very knowledgeable in oncology and she broke it down very well. Um, she called me back right away. She said if it was anything to worry about, if it was something malignant, there are typically four causes. Stress, some kind of prolonged illness, some kind of emotional or mental trauma, or some kind of hormonal surge. But all of these things distract the body and the immune system from maintaining a homeostasis. So she said the goal would really be just to get back to homeostasis. And she had a lot of suggestions for that. But in the meantime, the radiologist finished the corneal biopsy. And then the next day, we went back to the fertility specialist. The day of the biopsy, you know, of course, I came home and, you know, Pat and I were, I mean, we were, I remember both of us were crying because we thought that this was something very severe. And I remember you were there and it was just, I mean, everything felt very weird and surreal to me. But I said, okay, let's just pretend that this is an aberration and that this is not the trajectory that I'm going to be on. So let's just proceed ahead. And this time I went back to the reproductive doctor and said, look, I don't want to take any meds. I want to stop that. What I want to do is have you watch me as a natural cycle unfolds and just monitor blood work, do ultrasounds, but no chemicals, no drugs of any kind. And she agreed to that that day. And then we got the call while we were with her that it was ductal carcinoma from my old primary care. Right. So I actually picked up the phone when the primary care called and she said, there were two cancers. One was called DCIS. And then she said there was invasive ductal carcinoma. And she said she knew what that was, but she said basically not to worry about the DCIS. And she said the ductal carcinoma is the most common, the most treatable kind. And she said, really, there are so many fine surgeons locally who could easily remove it. And that this is not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. She said, I'm not saying we should just leave it alone. I think we should treat it. But 
if you were to test the tissue samples of people who passed away in their 90s and hundreds of various causes, you would probably find ductal carcinoma in all of them. I asked her for some recommendations of different surgeon names and she gave us a couple of names. And the fertility specialist we were with also gave us some names to call. And we don't like to waste any time, so we Well, made... you don't like to waste any time. Right, so, we, so I made phone calls right away. And this was on a Thursday. Monday morning, we were in to see surgeon number one, who we will call the pariah. Which is basically how everybody refers to her anyway. But yeah, so she, this appointment was the first surgeon. I was not allowed to bring anybody in with me. Though you came and you drove with me, you had to stay in the car. And I put you on speaker while she was with me. Uh, it was a very interesting appointment because I was, I've never been in this situation before, so I wasn't sure what to expect. But basically, she tried to get me to commit to every kind of body scan, bone scan, imaging that I absolutely had to get done. She told me that I was looking at a mastectomy, that the mass was too big to do a lumpectomy, though she's the only game in town that would even attempt it. And she tried to get me to literally sign on the dotted line, that I was ready to sign myself over to her. And I pushed back and I said, I want to think about it because I knew that we had other appointments coming and I didn't like her. So ultimately I was uncomfortable working with her. Now you asked her if Clomid had any role in doing this and her response was, oh yes, the hormones inflamed it. Oh, but but oh, we have a saying in medicine, don't blame the meds. And I was thinking, wait, what? You just said Clomid played a huge role in this and then you backtracked. How can you say don't blame the meds when you said the med had something to do with it? So that was another red flag. It was a red flag, but I think inadvertently she slipped. I think she did admit that fertility protocols caused it, but ultimately no doctor wants to actually come out and say that. Now she said that four months of chemo would be the right approach before a surgery. Mm -hmm. Do you remember why? Well, it was the same reason I was given by any surgeon who recommended that to me. The reason they suggested that at all was because of my age, because they knew at least one lymph node had uh, been compromised, and they felt that neoadjuvant therapy is like the new big thing in this space. So doing chemo before a surgery is supposed to be a benefit to the person going through this. Okay, and for anybody who's listening who may not know, chemotherapy typically was given after a surgery. But now, many times, it's done beforehand, and the rationale that's cited is that it shrinks the mass, and then doctors can see how well the chemo is working in the body, and then the surgery can take place. And sometimes there's chemo that's given after surgery as well. Yes, and I also think um, a lot of surgeons will say that in case there's anything else going on elsewhere in the body, other doctors have confirmed this, though not surgeons themselves. I think it's to make sure that they're not liable for something else uh, going elsewhere that they didn't detect before the surgery and then having the patient go back to them and saying, see, this ended up somewhere else and yet you did the surgery on me and I had no idea. Okay, so surgeon number one, the pariah, She's like a used car salesman. You don't want anything to do with her. No, and I'm glad because later reviews that we both researched about her showed that she was not the right candidate. I mean, people complained about her surgery skills. Okay, so then two days later, we meet surgeon number two, 
the complicated solution. This was the surgeon that the reproductive doctor had recommended to me. And by this time, uh, she had had the report about what my receptors were. So I didn't know this on Monday when I saw the pariah, but the complicated one told me that my receptors were estrogen positive, progesterone positive, which we both suspected was gonna be the case based on the hormones, but that I was also HER2 negative. So she said this was the best news that I could have gotten in a bad situation basically, because it's so hormonally sensitive, but it's also not as aggressive in their minds as a HER2 situation. So typically, breast cancers are categorized in a variety of ways. They could be estrogen positive, they could be estrogen progesterone positive, they could be HER2 positive, they could be HER2 negative, or they could be triple negative, or any combination. Or triple positive. Or triple positive, so any combination or permutation of these variables. Okay, so estrogen positive. That means that the malignant cells are responding to estrogen in the body. Progesterone positive, so the cells are responding to progesterone. So these are two types of hormones. HER2, so that's the epidermal growth gene, right? So anything that's HER2 positive or HER2 negative means it's either responding to the HER2 stimulating factor or it's not responding to it. So typically, the less aggressive, slower growing kinds are estrogen and progesterone positive, and then estrogen positive, and then come the more aggressive kinds, which are HER2 positive or triple negative, which means it's not responding to any of these. Not those hormones anyway. Not, not They're the responding to ones. something, right? So that's, that's what we're, we'll get more and more into that as we talk about this. But yeah, there are other fuel sources other than these hormones that you've listed. But yes, these are the ones that are always checked. Okay, so you were estrogen and progesterone positive. So the biology of these cells suggest that they're slower growing, they're less aggressive. That's not what I was told by these surgeons, but yes, that is true. Now, it also makes sense because I was taking progesterone supplements for the IUIs. Estradiol had climbed to over 300 and then over like 600, right? So it was very clear that this was hormonally fueled. Now, why was the mass so big? Because I had an influx of hormones so fast in my body in such a short amount of time. It doesn't mean, as we found out later, that the cells were any more or less aggressive, right? And we'll talk about that. But basically the hormones caused it to grow. Okay, I'm gonna add a quick correction because I'm looking back at my notes and your estradiol numbers were actually over 500 and 600. So they were really high. So the estradiol clearly was telling your body that you needed to make more ductal cells. Right, and what was not happening was that the old ductal cells were not dying off fast enough, right? So we have cell turnover in the body all the time. You know, stem cells differentiate and grow, and then the old cells that are there kind of go away. But in my case, I was not having that uh, retreat and then uh, renewal. It wasn't happening in the normal balance. It was happening in an accelerated fashion, and I assumed that that's what would happen in any malignancy. Okay, so you end up with too many ductal cells and they don't have anywhere else to grow. They start growing inside the ducts. The ducts aren't big enough to contain them. So they start breaking out of the ducts. Well, as we saw, some had not. That's why I had two versions of it. I had the stage zero, which was contained in the ducts. And then I had invasive, which would have been stage one or two. Okay. And so now coming back to the complicated surgeon. So she is telling us all about what she's learned in the pathology report and how these receptors work. What's her solution? Well, her solution uh, was to do a lumpectomy, 
um, after chemo, so neoadjuvant chemo followed by a lumpectomy, and then to take tissue from the right side, transfer it to the left so that I would have uh, cosmetic symmetry, though she said I would go down maybe a letter size or two if I was okay with that. But she said there is no difference in outcomes uh, whether you do a mastectomy or a lumpectomy with radiation. Okay, so surgeon number one told you she was the only one in town who would even try a lumpectomy. And yet yes. two days later, this surgeon, the complicated one, tells you that she can do it, but it's just a little intricate. What, what did you feel about her? I mean, nicer than surgeon number one, but still not quite sold on the approach, especially I think the neoadjuvant chemo still just didn't make sense when we knew that this was so hormonally fueled I didn't know if chemo would actually address that aspect of it. So um, I was still unsure of what to do, but I know, and it's hard in this situation, and luckily I had you, but ultimately, I mean, you do have to take a little bit of time to keep asking questions because you are going to hear contradictory information, and that's what we started hearing. The complicated surgeon, surgeon number two, also said that she wasn't sure what they would find on the right side because you were due for a biopsy on the right side. When I was diagnosed, one of the first things that everybody says to do is to get an MRI of both breasts, right? So before you do any surgery, let's just make sure we're not missing something on the other side. So I did. Um, and of course, it showed that the mass on the left side was about 4.6 centimeters. And then on the right side, they didn't see any growth or mass, but they saw supposedly tissue that was suspicious, though no one could say what was suspicious about it. So I was due to get a biopsy of some kind, possibly. Um, I didn't end up doing that through surgeon's numbers one or two, but this was something that I think we knew might be coming. Now, the surgeon number two at the time said it was a 50-50 chance that anything on the right side would be malignant, but it turned out that she was far from being correct. As all future doctors told us, it would be very rare to have a malignancy hormonally sensitive in both sides. At the same time. At the same time. Yeah, so they were wrong about that. But as we can talk about, I'm sure there was a reason why she wanted me to think about that. Okay, so surgeon number two, better than surgeon number one. So then we go to see surgeon number three. This is the bureaucrat. Yes, she works for a big bureaucracy. That's a huge behemoth. Um, and when we went, it felt like we were in a factory. You know, they have a very typical order, you know, when you check in, how you're treated and talked to by the staff that are there, and then what happens, etc. So I knew that we were in a factory when we went. And I obviously was very turned off by that ambiance to begin with. Though everybody talks about this place as being the place to go to, I still wasn't quite sold. But you and I were both allowed into the appointment together. So we met the bureaucrat together. And it was a very revealing, I think this was the most revealing consultation that we had had to date. We had to wait the same time as we would have waited for a car purchase. And I think uh, that's part of this process is that, you know, a lot of people come in already scared. Waiting makes you more scared because you feel more dread approaching. And so I think it was very interesting how she spoke to me um, when she came into the room. I remember she first asked how you were feeling. I think she expected there to be a huge element of fear and uncertainty. Well, I think she, I think they thought I would be in tears. I, that, I think every surgeon expected me to just break down. Right. But you said, well, it was very scary in the beginning, but as we learn more, I have much to be encouraged by. She listened to that and immediately 
her attitude, because she was sunny when she came in, and she suddenly put on this sort of dark cloud over her face, and she said, well, it is a little worrisome that we have positive lymph nodes. And she let that sink in so that it quieted the room a little bit. But then she talked about her solution. She didn't favor a mastectomy. No, she also favored, the. Uh, they call it conservation, right? So she favored the conservation approach, which was a lumpectomy with uh, radiation and chemo, and then fat grafting after all of that was done uh, to make both sides look the same. Though she admitted that you don't really have that much fat. Right, and she said she could have done a lumpectomy on you that day, right away. But she said, let's just do four months of chemo, which led into an interesting discussion of why chemo and her rationale was that any loose cell that's lingering would be addressed by chemo. But later we found out that chemo works by killing off cells that are aggressively dividing, not loose cells. Two oncologists, at least, told us that chemo does not address loose cells. So we brought that up to her, saying we thought that chemo addressed dividing cells, not loose cells. And she said, well, you'd have to talk to our oncologist about that. I don't know exactly how that works. Well, and she got frustrated that we were asking questions. I remember that, um, you know, she had to see another patient. So she said, okay, like, wait here for 10 or 15 minutes and I'll come back. And when she came back, it, she made it seem like it was a big chore uh, to even talk to us and answer some questions. Well, one of the questions we asked her was, historically, how effective is chemo against cells that are estrogen and progesterone positive? And she fumbled and said, well, historically, it's not very effective, but we're going to do it anyway. And you never know. Don't you remember when she talked about the shrinkage of the mass? And we said, is it guaranteed that the mass would even shrink with chemo? Because I asked that question because nobody had been able to give me a guarantee on that. She said, well, even if it's a little bit more jiggly, that's fine. Right. I mean, it was basically so that she didn't have to have any liability. And it seemed like it was standard protocol. It was very textbook. And that's just what they were going to do. But after she explained all that, she did say, but we're not going to see you back after this. She knew that Clomid played a role in it because the PA had explained Clomid. And then she mentioned Clomid when she came in herself. So she never denied how this was suddenly caused by a surge. She was the first uh, one out of the three that we had already met that had acknowledged that. And that was also uh, rev revelatory in and of itself. Exactly. So she let her guard down for a moment and said, we see things like this all the time. We're not going to see you back after this. I'll see you in four months and then I won't see you again. Interestingly, when she sensed our calm towards the end, as she was leaving, she got the dark cloud over her face again and said, I did see grade three in there as she closed the door. Which we found out later was actually wrong, but we'll get to that too. So for our audience listeners, tumors are graded as one, two, or three, depending on how aggressive they look. Everybody called this grade three, though, as we learned later, there were only a few parts here and there that were grade three. Most of it was grade one and two. And, and that was confirmed actually by Dana Farber mm -hmm. in Boston, which is one of the top places in the country for this. And they eventually downgraded the original mass from three to two anyway. So we found out that most of it was actually grade one. So anybody who said that they saw grade three was simply trying to scare us. 
into making a decision right there and then on the spot. Well, and so um, this place, uh, surgeon number three's office booked me for bone scans, all these scans that surgeon number one had wanted to do and an MRI guided biopsy. Now, surgeon number three told us right off the bat, they're not gonna see anything on the right side. There's not gonna be anything, but we do it as a precaution. So just get it done. and it'll be over. So I knew going into this, it was likely that they were gonna do a biopsy on the right breast, but that they wouldn't find anything. So on my birthday, ironically, that's when they did the MRI guided biopsy. And sure enough, they didn't find anything, though I got a fibroid out of it. Now you've seen surgeon number one, the pariah, who's a no. Surgeon number two, the complicated one, who's a maybe. Surgeon number three, the bureaucrat, who is a yes or a no. At this stage, I wasn't sold on any of them. So we move on to see surgeon number four, the manipulator. She is in a large medical institution about an hour away from here, and it's a famous medical institution. We had heard about this surgeon from friends and family who either went through her or knew someone who went through her. Now, this large medical institution was hurting because COVID had kicked in, elective surgeries had been canceled. So there was a huge revenue source that was hurting this university. And we had heard through the grapevine that people who work there, that some doctors were actually going to be let go because they could not make their bills. So we went to meet with this surgeon. We got in right away. No waiting time at all. And the surgeon told us that She didn't see any need for chemo. After talking to her oncologist, so she had had a conversation and that was something that had not happened where all of these other surgeons had not talked about me with their uh, corresponding oncologist. So this was the first surgeon, interestingly, that had mentioned that. Now, she also told me that the nuclei of my malignant cells were not really all that different than my normal ductal cells nuclei. I thought that was interesting information as well that she shared. So what did she recommend? She recommended, well, initially she wanted to do a mastectomy, which I'm so thankful that I did not do, as we'll get to later. But if she said, okay, you know, if you want to try a lumpectomy, I can try it. That's not a problem. So she said, we can do it in early June. Uh, You don't need to do chemo prior to the surgery. We don't think that would be of benefit to you. And, you know, because of the lymph node, at that time, we didn't know how many nodes had been compromised. We knew one had for sure. So she said, you're probably like stage one and a half. Stage one, because it is invasive within the left breast. However, it's because of the node that you're probably going to be stage two. So she recommended a mastectomy, but then agreed to try a lumpectomy. But she did hint that she could do a second surgery if needed. At that point, though, we were thinking, okay, let's just get to June and then let's see how this goes. But then actually within two days of seeing her, she called me and she said that I have an opening for next week. If you can come and we can do this and get it out. And I was thinking, yes, because obviously this should not just be sitting there right now. Let's take it out and then let's see what's actually going on with the mass itself and before we make any other decisions. So, yeah, I mean, within from diagnosis to my lumpectomy, it was two and a half weeks, which is an incredible turnaround. Very, very quickly, we drive out early in the morning. You get prepped for surgery. Unnecessarily there for three hours before, but yes. 
And so they give you all kinds of drugs and heavy oh, yeah. medicine. It was, it was, I mean, I've never felt this sedated before. Um, it was, it was weird. I mean, you, you remember, cause you were the one who had to pick me up. I couldn't wake up for hours because of how groggy I was. So it was, the surgery was uh, done, I think by like 10 o'clock in the morning. I don't think I woke up until three. Right. Okay. And I remember the surgeon called and from here it gets really interesting she said she took out the mass, but well, she said you did really well in the surgery. She said she took out the mass and she measured it 3.5 centimeters. I asked her that the MRI said it was at least 4.5. I said, you're measuring three and a half. How could this thing have shrunk by so much in a week? She said, well, that's what I measured. I got it with my best measurement. And she said five nodes felt abnormal. And she said the oncologist will probably push for chemo because of the clinical factors involved, which was age, which was the size of the mass and the number of lymph nodes involved. So she said to just be prepared that they're probably going to push for chemo. But she did not sound unsurprised about any of this, as though she was almost expecting to find these uh, this number of lymph nodes compromised. So I asked the nurse after why there was this discrepancy between the mass measurement by the surgeon and the mass measurement of the MRI. And the nurses said, the surgeon's always right. I said, okay, so maybe the imaging got it wrong. So then we got the path report. Yeah, it was a while after, it took a while for us to get it. But now in the meantime, I saw the surgeon a week after my lumpectomy. So the path report hadn't come back to us yet, uh, if you recall then. And everything that she told you about the chemo, yeah, she basically said, well, we did our best. She called her effort valiant. Yeah, she said, we made a valiant effort. And that's exactly what she said. And you were on the phone on speaker because you weren't allowed in still because of COVID. And she said, well, we made a valiant effort, but we're going to have to do a mastectomy. You know, we couldn't get everything. And so what they thought that they had left behind was DCIS in their pathology report. And we'll explain all this in a second. But basically, she said, we couldn't get everything. So you're going to do three months of chemo, probably. Then we'll wait a month, do the mastectomy, and then we'll do radiation. And I said, well, can you do a nipple sparing mastectomy? And she said, no. Okay, so let's back up just for a sec. So it's the DCIS that's left behind. According to this place, yes. Okay, so the DCIS, she called it stage zero. She said you could leave it in there. It only three out of 100 people ever see it turn malignant. You don't have to do anything to it. So she said this would be considered an elective mastectomy. Okay, so elective surgeries are billed differently than yeah, non-elective. You make more money off of it. Okay, so she, now what was her recommendation? To do the surgery or not to do the surgery? To do it. And why? Why worry about it? You're young. It'll never come back after that. Okay, so she's pushing for an elective surgery that they would make more money off, and you and she's using your emotional state as a leverage. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, if you ask this doctor how I presented to her uh, in the wake of the surgery, she would probably tell you I was very fearful, very anxious. I didn't want to talk about my path report with her, but ultimately there were reasons for that. I I lost trust. Um, as soon as she said we made a valiant effort and you know she projected a vibe of, well, it almost seemed like I was the one who failed in the way that she spoke to me. And there was something that rubbed me the wrong way about her. So of course I don't want to talk about path reports with her. I was very clear that the surgeon's job is not to discuss 
my next steps. The next steps would be discussed with the doctor that I would want to work with in that capacity. A surgeon's job is done when the surgery is done. So for me, it felt like a waste of time to sit there and debate this with her. But I think if you asked a doctor why I would be particular about not discussing that with them, they would have interpreted that as this person is way too cowardly and scared to discuss her own situation. Okay, so surgeon number four, the manipulator, says, yeah, we didn't get everything in the first surgery, makes it seem like it's your fault, tells you you should do a mastectomy, which is total removal of the breast. And then when you ask her about nipple sparing mastectomies, which means you leave the original nipple and the areola intact, she says it's not possible because of three reasons. The first, she said she already had taken some areola. Which she did. But now, if you look at me now, you would never even know. But yes, at the time, she thought it was too cosmetically compromised. Just because she took a little bit of areola from the first surgery. and Which tested negative for cancer. Just to be clear, there was no cancer in my nipple. So she took it as a precaution. Yes. And she said because she took out a teeny little bit that you couldn't even notice, now there was no possible way to spare the nipple. Correct. Okay. Doesn't make any sense. Reason number two, she said there's not enough tissue left behind to do a nipple sparing mastectomy. Now, why do you need tissue left behind to spare the nipple? Actually, she never answered that. I, I could conjecture that it's because the nipple needs support to kind of look like a nipple. And also because if you cut off the blood supply, you get tissue necrosis and that can cause infection. So I would assume it would be for appearance, but also because you don't want the tissue to decay. Okay, so in her opinion, she felt there was not enough tissue left behind. So that was the second reason. The last reason, she said you wouldn't like the way it looked if she did a nipple sparing mastectomy. Yeah, which I thought was strange because I wouldn't like the way I looked without my nipple, but okay. <laughs> okay, so she's given you all these excuses about why she can't do a nipple sparing mastectomy. Ultimately, we think it's because she doesn't have the capability to do it. Correct. Now, we find out later from talking to others who've gone through her, she never does nipple sparing mastectomies. No. It's not common in this institution's practice overall. It's actually not common in many parts of the East Coast. It's not that they, there are valid reasons, it's just no one really knows how to do it. Yeah, I think it requires different incisions. I think it requires um, a different finesse from the surgeon. And I think that, like you said, a lot of them are not trained to actually operate like that. Okay, so her solution for a mastectomy is to remove all the tissue during the surgery and then what does she put in place? Uh, it's like an expander. So basically you get an expander um, to kind of fill the cavity uh, in the breast and then you get saline injections however often the plastic surgeon decides um, to do it uh, based on your situation, I guess. And then you get injected, because I've heard different accounts of how many injections women have gotten. So you would get injections, fill it up like a balloon, and then when the chest has expanded um, to look like it can house an implant, then you place the saline implant into the pocket. Now, that day, I remember um, you weren't in the room with me, but you were on the phone. I don't know if you remember this, but she basically said, I'm ready. I got my plastic surgeon ready to talk to you. Here's his number. The front desk will take care of all of it. They wanted me to make the appointment 
appointment. Again, it was the same thing that had happened in the bureaucracy. They wanted me to make the appointment and commit right then and there. And I said, no, let me go home. Let me figure out my childcare schedule because I have a two-year-old at home and I want to actually think about how I'm going to do all this before I just you know jump into it. And I'm so glad that I didn't do it with them. Okay, but she wanted you to put these expanders or these balloons in during the surgery. And then you have to go back periodically to get injections to inflate them and keep them inflated and over how many months? I don't know. I've heard varying accounts. Some women it's been two or three months, but it would have been dependent on my situation because this institution was pushing for chemo. So things would have been delayed with chemo and radiation anyway. I don't know ultimately if I had stayed there when they would have put the implants in. Okay, so it could have been many, many months of mm -hmm. going back for these injections to keep these balloons inflated and staying with an expander even after that okay eventually then there's a third surgery in which they would take the inflators or the balloons or the expanders out and then put permanent implants in and then eventually there's a fourth surgery to do a fake nipple or you just get a two-dimensional tattoo and don't do a fourth surgery so yes okay so all this is going to be a lot of surgeries, a lot of time. Each time you're getting drugs and anesthetics, you're getting antibiotics. That's what we were faced with a whole year. Okay, so we have this option of going forward with a surgery or be like three out of a hundred people and not do anything about it. And so we come to a point, we realize we need more advice. But also not advice just from surgeons now, advice from doctors who would make those decisions with you after you've reached a certain stage. So stay tuned for the next episode in which we'll introduce oncologists number one, two, and three.